How does a young white Northern Irish writer get chosen as the right man to tell the heartbreaking story of institutionalised racism, abuse and near-death experiences of one of Britain's fastest athletes of all time? The answer, as you will hear, is friendship, crack and Donald McRae. Despite their different backgrounds, Anika Noro and Jonathan Drennan have worked together to create one of the most compelling books you will ever read, in my opinion. More than just a biography, Anika's book, My Hidden Race, is an unflinchingly honest account of growing up and finding athletic success in a country that is at times willfully blind to the racial violence and microaggressions black women are expected to endure. Anika medalled at the Olympics, the Worlds, the Euros and the Commonwealth Games, a feat very few people will ever accomplish, and few, as a result, could give a better insight into the world of professional athletics and its darkness better than Anika. Trigger warning here though, before we get going, we are going to talk about issues relating to the mental, physical and sexual abuse she suffered during those years. Stick around at the end of part one. I have a little bit of news about my status as an Irish man abroad. Annika and John, it is an absolute pleasure to have you both on the show. Maybe the best place to start this conversation, given it's the first time in a long time I've had two people on the show at the same time, is to discuss how the two of you met and how this book came about. Yes, so we met through the really amazing journalist, um, sports journalist Donald McRae. I had um, an interview with Don back in 2017 and he was telling me, basically I was just talking about my story about how I overcame malaria to win an Olympic medal back in 2016 at the Rio Games. And when we did the interview, when we did the interview in a hotel room on a hotel phone, in the middle of Bahamas when it was like the day before my competition. And the way we did, the way Don did the interview was like so amazing. Mm. And then off the back of that, he basically said, you know, I know there's a lot more to you. Would you ever consider writing a book about your life? And I was like, absolutely not. Like, who's going to buy it? <laughs> no one <I> care. <laughs> um, you know, all of those stuff. And then he said, you know, when, when you retire, let's have a conversation. So fast forward uh, two years later, like two, yeah, two, two and a half years later, we um, we have said conversation. And this is pre-COVID. So this is like December, uh, November, December 2019. And and then, yeah, we had a conversation and he, he basically, um, you know, helped me find some writers. And like, that's how I met Jonathan. That's the shortened version. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically. But yeah, that's the shortened version, the longer short of it. Well, John, the reason why I ask is because uh, there's so much trust involved in writing a book like this and the tenderness with which you handle it and that you have to handle it in the way you've got to build that trust is we don't have this book without that. You, Annika, said that Jonathan is a friend for life at the end of this do you feel that way too, Jonathan? Now, it'll be weird now if you go, no. <laughs> <laughs> you better figure not. <laughs> no, well, I think absolutely. I mean, Annika really, I suppose it, it wouldn't ever have worked. I think this type of book, if we hadn't built up the friendship that we did and, you know, she sort of became a bit of a, bit of a sort of surrogate sister to me really. And the key thing is, I suppose, is Annika said to me a while ago, I said like, how on paper was this going to work you get 
a guy who grew up in East Belfast, didn't know a lot about athletics, very neurotic personality with someone who, again, someone from Liverpool, elite Olympic medalist and world championship and European medalist, who's a very positive, happy-go-lucky personality. But I have to say, I think the big thing is Scouse and Irish humour. I think it just goes. And we had so many tough days writing it over two years, but so many um, laughs as well. So <laughs> whenever I started it, I, I actually wasn't sure that I could ever write a book and I didn't ever want to write a book. But after I met Annika and was introduced by Dawn and Annika had a few writers she was um, interested in working. After I had met Annika, I just said to my wife, I said, like, I have to do this. And um, so I went from not wanting to ever write a book to sort of, I couldn't really think of anything else that I wanted to do more. Yeah, uh, I totally get it. And you can feel that passion in the book too, Annika. I'm sure uh, you'd no doubt that you picked the right guy after that first three hour Zoom conversation. Do you set out right away, Annika, to kind of help the reader understand how institutionalized racism is in Britain and how you probably had a PTSD from what you went through in your early years? Because so many people would think, well, why would you put up with this? But from what you described from your early years, it's living through those kind of things is exactly why you would put up with this. Yeah, it, it was definitely, you know, a very, very tough moment for me throughout those years of, you know, growing up as a young girl in a city like Liverpool um, and then being told, you know, from a young age, you're going to have to work 10 times harder than your white counterparts. Now, as a child, you don't want to, you shouldn't have to hear that. Um, you don't understand it. You know, you, you just want to go out and play with your friends. Hmm. But then you start to see things a lot differently as you get older. Um, from primary school, it, it's like, you know, I, I wasn't at, at, by any means bullied or picked on at primary school. But, you know, those little things like, you know, when you go to uh, you're playing playground stuff or you're playing you know, games with sport in sports yep. and stuff. And it, it's like, OK, I'll pick this one. So you got two teams. And then you're like the last to be picked. Mm -hmm. um, and then it, and then it's down to like things like, oh, well, why does your hair look different? You know, my hair is like Afro, it's kinky. My hair type is 4C. Why does it look like that? And why don't I see things like that? I, why don't I see people like me on TV with those similar hairstyles? So, um, and then going into adulthood, just seeing the way, you know, I was treated and I was overlooked for certain opportunities and you know just kind of it kind of it was just very very disappointing at times I shouldn't mm. have had to be had to have been told um I have to work you know 10 times harder you know because that was what my mom and dad went through so the fact that I was still doing it in my generation it kind of said a lot yeah I mean there's so much coverage in relation to this specific period where your family is essentially run out of one particular neighborhood and it culminates in the firebombing of your car. And yeah. I'll be honest with you, there are going to be people that just will be rereading the pages going, this couldn't have happened in modern day England, especially if you live in a part of it like I do, that 
has so many races living side by side. What was it about this specific part of Liverpool that allowed you know bricks to be thrown through your windows on a regular basis for your you know your family to go to church and have to leave one person in the house for fear that something would happen? Can you pinpoint anything specific about that place, or is that just it? There was nothing very specific about that place. Yeah, there was pretty much nothing to be honest. Um, it was it didn't really have that many people like black people in the area. Um, but the thing is it was in the South part of the city. So in Liverpool as a city, you got the North side and you got the South side, the North side, which is for Zachary, um, uh, Roby, Kirby, Anfield, Everton, all West Derby, all those areas. You don't tend to have a lot of black people there. Now you do, it's changed a lot, but back in the nineties, you didn't. So, Anyone who's of, of ethnic minority in Liverpool would usually be in the South Side. So in the South Side, you're 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 still going to encounter racism, but it's less likely to happen because you're more likely to see more people like you. But in this particular area, there was literally a road that separates um like this area in Dingle to Toxteth. So it was just it was always mind blowing how. I mean, I could go there today and I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't like encounter any racism whatsoever. But most of the part, most of the time, sorry, it was just, you know, kids and the kids were just relentless. Mm. So the car bombing was the final straw. Um, And I think for my dad, my dad was a proud Nigerian man. So he was always like, no, we're not leaving. We're not leaving. Um, like you're going to have to, we're going to have to get drags out the area, um, which was you know, back then you think, when I look back, I think, well, why, why did he do that? He should have just left. Yeah. But because, you know, I th- and I did think, I think it did get to the point where we were, like our lives were at risk after the car bomb incident. But, you know, before then it was like the bricks through the windows. We were getting um, stuff sent in the post. We were getting robbed, you know, every so often. Um, so, it, yeah, it was just kids and they were just relentless. The police weren't doing anything. The authorities weren't doing anything. Anytime the kids would have a particular case where they'd appear in court, they would always appear like good as gold. And then, you know, because they were truant, they were mm. missing school and stuff. And my understanding was at the time was that they'd go back to school and do like a couple of like full full days a week. And then once everything calms down, then they'd just go back and just taunt us continuously. So yeah, it was it was it was a rough time for us, and it was definitely a rough time for me, especially to go through that during those particular years of growing up. Well, John, your job is to capture this, and in some ways, I'd imagine you know, being from your background, you were, you know, pretty well equipped to have to explain things to people that they either knowingly ignore or are just oblivious to because they're in their own bubble. How important was it at the start of this book to kind of, you know, pull the scales from people's eyes in relation to this kind of everyday race-related violence in the UK? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say, Jarlith, is although I grew up in Belfast, I suppose I had a very different childhood in that the area I grew up in was a little bit of a bubble. Now you were a couple of miles on each 
different sides. You were surrounded by problems, but in no way, shape or form did that really make me qualified to sort of understand what Annika had been through in terms of specific hmm. racism. So I suppose the first thing for me really was to sort of essentially go in, you know, hopefully with empathy, but, but rather ignorant in terms of the the absolute scale of, of issues that she'd faced so um my job really wasn't to put my own spin on it i suppose my job always was just to listen to annika and truly to get her own tone, tone of voice and the biggest thing i think we both agreed on from the start was we'd both read so many sports books where essentially they were dry and we knew that it, it had to go far, far beyond Annika's life as an athlete. In fact, it had to be the story of, you know, essentially the struggle and, and ultimate success of a black woman growing up in Britain. So I think maybe, I don't know, Annika, you, you would have a better perspective, but as a sort of white male growing up in East Belfast, maybe in some ways the fact that I hadn't gone through what you had gone through, um, maybe you know because sometimes i just say to you, annika you've got to explain this and we sort of had to go through that process didn't we yeah yeah we did we did but you know you you were able to capture so many so many of the things that i had going on um you know over so many years you captured it so well and and yeah just just to follow up on what you were saying about you know us reading books sports books sports autobiographies and honestly i find some of them extremely boring <laughs> because they just don't they don't capture anything like they're just dry and um one of my favorite ones for example was um Andre Agassi's open because oh, yeah. he just left you on the edge every single time <laughs> so absolutely um so I, I I'm not saying like oh I wanted to emulate <laughs> Andre Agassi by any means but what I wanted to do is I wanted the reader um and it doesn't matter who you are I just want everyone to just have access and to just read the book to just be left gripped by it so when I now that the books come out when when people message me or email me or DM me to say you know Annika I haven't read a book in 15 years and I read yours in eight hours or um you know I haven't read a book in two years and I read yours over a weekend or you know I'm not a book reader but like I just loved everything or even if they just say you know I love the cover I'm sold off the cover alone <laughs> they're just they're just like yeah I'm just yeah they're just gripped by it and you know and also given what's written in the book you know there's some sensitive topics in there um in terms of what I went through just you know people just show a lot of empathy so hmm. um yeah I'm I'm definitely 100% happy with the fact that I had Jonathan on board from the get-go well Annika there thing about covering this stuff and coming and doing and agreeing to do interviews as generously as you have with me here and doing the rounds is that there's obviously going to be things that the media will zero in on. You both must have realized when you were on those things, you've hinted at, at them earlier. Let's, I guess the first one to talk about is your interaction with this physio at a very young age where a line isn't just crossed, it's trampled over and done so in such a way that was so reminiscent of Larry Nasser and how he behaved and the brazenness of the behavior that you had to know writing it that 
well, you tell me what's on your mind as you're putting together this part of this and exactly how tough is this knowing that this is now your mom's going to read this. Everyone I know is going to read this, just as you say, they're going to devour this book and they they may think of this when they see me. Yeah, it, it was definitely tough. Um, just writing all those parts because I'd never, I'd never discussed it with anyone. Um, but I knew I'd only, only up until that point, the only person who knew really was Don. And, um, you know, he, it's about being comfortable enough to tell people because I, Mm. all these, all these different things that I encountered, whether it was the assault, the abuse, like the list, it was, it, I'd all just compartmentalized it and just put it away in the back of my mind as as people both men and women who've suffered any form of trauma do you just put it to the back of your mind but it was only when I was you know looking at looking back at pictures of me competing or looking at training camps or looking at my training diary from like 15 years ago I can pinpoint what I was doing where I was and how I felt on that day because everything that we did was quite militant and structured. Um, Because, you know, it's all about performance. But having to relive those moments with the physio was definitely a tough one because you have to sit there and just kind of recount all the information. And, like, Jonathan was so, so kind and just so sweet. And he was just like, you know, we can take a break. We don't have to, you know talk about this that and the other but I was like no I want this in the book I want this this is what I wanted to add or one of the things I wanted to you know to talk about um because people just go through life and you think oh it'll never happen to me or you know you can't imagine that's happened to me people think it will never happen to them um or people assume that oh you know this there's no way this happened to Annika which is what actually happened. You know, people uh, questioned whether, you know, this actually did happen to me. Um, so, yeah, it was it was definitely tough to write about. But like I said, um, I'm happy. I'm happy with with what I've written. And ultimately, I've been also been able to help other people. So people have sent me like messages and in emails and like people who I don't even know who've told me they've also suffered some form of abuse, whether it's from, I don't know, a family member or someone or an adult, you know, just trauma that they've gone through. They they can also relate. So it's not just about me telling my story. It's also about me helping other people. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned there that some people didn't believe you when you told them. Well, uh, is Am I right in saying that, that, there, that anyone that you talked to about it uh, outside of Don, didn't buy it. Um, since the book's released, there's been most of, most of it has been positive. There's just been one unfortunate encounter with someone who I know, and they just didn't believe believe me in this. Not this in, not this particular physio incident, but with the with the sexual assault, they they just didn't believe me. Um which was wow. yeah they they just yeah and you know you because it's someone who I know it's it's so much worse because um it's like well why would you even why would you even say that like why would I go out of my way 
to like to go into detail about everything that I encountered at like everything. I remember every single detail about what happened, you know, um, during that instance. So it's like, why would, who goes out of the way to make up a story about sexual assault? I don't know anyone who, mm. who does that and who would do it and write it in a book. Um, so it was very, very disheartening to hear. But, but when I think of the support I've had from people who have been able to, um, read the book and, you know, show empathy and, you know, just reach out and, you know, just show support. Um, that, that also means a lot, but for the most part, it has been super, super positive, but it, at times it was hard for me, but, um, and it's also hard for my family as well, just reading for them to read all the stuff. Like my mom, it was hard for her to read it all. Hmm. Um, my partner, it was hard for him, but again, everyone's just been super supportive. I think we have kind of reached a very strange, not fork in the road, but turn in the road in relation to believing victims. Uh, I I do connect it to the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial uh, and other cases, Uh, but that was a concern for me when I got to that point of this book, that it is still your word against someone else's. Um, that was obviously a big part as to why you didn't take a case because even Don mentioned in the Guardian piece that you did with him whether you'd consider taking a case now. Well, um, what I will say is the conversations are being had um, and the my federation have been in contact um, f- from a safeguarding standpoint, so obviously I'm no longer competing. I'm no longer competing athletes. I'm no longer a member of the team, the c- current team. But um, given what's happened with the physio and with the sportsmen, um, they they want to you know show support and offer any advice or any um, legal support should I choose to go down that route. So yeah, the conversations mm. are being had. I- I'm just you know. Um, looking at my options moving forward. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, loads of people will be delighted to hear that, Annika. Uh, One one part of this is a loss of innocence, isn't it? There's a huge part of this is the uh, little girl who kills it at P and (laughs) finds this talent and uh, loves to run and is clearly gifted at it. And then finds herself as a young woman in what you've described as the man's world, the white man's world of professional athletics. Now, some of the things that you mentioned here in relation to this about uh, these race directors who uh, have told your colleagues to wear shorter, tighter clothing. You said you even know women that have been asked to sleep with those men that control the big races across the world, knowing that it might get them a favorable lane if they kind of go through this, as you call it, casting couch type situation. When did you first become aware of that side of international athletics? I would say as soon as I made the senior team, so when I was around ooh, maybe 19, maybe 1920. Um, so I wasn't, I didn't get to compete 
at my first Olympics until Beijing. But before that, I was still part of the four by one team, like doing back in the day, they used to do like GB versus USA versus Russia um, competitions. Mm. And I was part of the senior four by one team or the B team in the four by one. Um, so when you, when you were around certain athletes on the, on the British team, and then you were say you were around certain athletes um, internationally, you start to understand the dynamics of the sport from a different perspective. So it's not, it's no longer about performance. So if you run quick enough, you, you'll get a lane and hopefully you'll get a favorable lane. But then there was like a unwritten rule where if you're a pretty girl um, and you're not running that well, then, you know, you'd have to do favors, so to speak, and um, with the meet director. And I was like, what? And that was, that was something that was always ongoing. Um, especially when I was coming was up. And explained to you. Um, it wasn't so much explained. It was, it wasn't explained by any, the, any of the senior leaders or management or agents or whatever. It was more to do with the athletes themselves, like the athletes. Cause some of the athletes had mm. really uh, good relationships with some of the meet, meet organizers, but you can see some of them, some of the meet organizers would just take advantage of like a young girl, especially if she's up and coming. She doesn't know any difference. Um, you know, you just assume this is what she's got to do. And it was all, but the pattern was, it was always the men. It was, sorry, it was always the mm. girls on, on, you know, on teams, or mm. it was always the girls who were competing in, in golden league, golden leagues back then, or international competitions that those are the ones who had, who usually had to do it. It was never the other way around. Um, and then you'd hear about girls who have to wear like short, uh, crop tops or short, uh, or wear briefs. So literally your skin is on display. Um, in order to get the best sponsors, you need to be visible. You need to look good. You need to just, just everything outside of performance. That was all it was. So thankfully me personally, I didn't have to do any of that. So I wasn't, you know, asked to sleep with this meet director or this agent or whatever. Um, but yeah, I was fully aware of some of the things that did, that did happen within the sport in my early years. How shocking was that to you, John, when you uh, came to this project and when this starts being explained to you by Annika? Because I certainly was like, I don't know why I was so innocent as to this kind of thing, I guess, because it's it, it, like it is, it's truly sordid. It's it, it truly is corrupt. Uh, what was your response when you first heard of this? And were you were you as shocked as I am, and probably plenty of the listeners are right now? I mean, yes and no, Jordan. I mean, I suppose a lot of the writing I like to do is is I suppose far beyond the the conventional writing. I like to find out things that maybe we don't necessarily see as a fan. And I obviously had an appreciation of athletics, but one thing you know we really wanted to do. Annika and myself was sort of tell the things that other people hadn't necessarily said. And I think mm. as somebody with very limited sporting ability, I've watched Olympics, I've watched, you know, high level athletics with no clue whatsoever. And it goes way beyond this sort of sordid casting couch that Annika has described so eloquently. Um, and obviously the racism, the, the sexual assault. But also, you know, the, the absolute hypocrisy 
in terms of some of the the sporting um, major brands as well and their treatment of of women. So we did, I don't know, I think Annika, we, we, you're the mathematician in this organization, but I think we worked out, we did hundreds of hours of interviews and we never quite knew where it was going to go. But the stuff that just came out quite organically, because Annika does have this incredible memory, um, you know, to an extent was shocking, but I suppose you can never be too surprised with sport and 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 particularly as well when you've got somebody like Annika who is fairly fearless in in what she's saying. Well, we've so much more to talk about, Annika and John. Uh, the book is called My Hidden Race. It is out right now by Mirror Books in the UK and Ireland. And I want to dig into a couple more aspects of it as much as we can in the time we have in the second half of my conversation over on patreon.com forward slash Irishman abroad for as little as a five or a month. You can gain access to hundreds of interviews that I've done over the last eight years with great Irish athletes, including Sonia Sullivan, Dervil O'Rourke, Eamon Coughlin, Ronnie Delaney, you name them, they've all been on here. And I'm delighted to add Annika to that list. And this, this conversation, Annika, <laughs> I mean, I can't say that I'm like rubbing my hands together to talk about your recovery from malaria, but it is real rocky stuff, like <laughs> learning <laughs> to <laughs> jog in your back, in your back garden again. I mean, and then to go to the Olympics, I, I, I mean, it's, it's something you guys are going to need to hear for yourselves. Come on over patreon.com forward slash Irishman abroad couple of clicks, you're all signed up and you get sent a little link and it populates in your podcast app. So there you have it. That's part one of my conversation with Anika Onora and Jonathan Drennan. This is a different week for me. I am in the process of moving back to Ireland or moving my family back. I will from this point on be splitting my time each week between London and Dublin. I'll still be an Irishman abroad, just less so. I uh, I know it's a strange old time. Anybody who's moved home will know exactly how tricky it is. I want to say thanks to all the messages that I've received uh, and everyone who was so sound at the Ivy Gardens at the Dublin Comedy Festival this weekend. Um, there's, there's not much to say other than the show's going to keep going. Everything's going to keep going. Uh, the only thing is that next week, as I move everything across, it might be tricky to get a Sunday episode up, but I will certainly have something for you. And of course, Sonia Sullivan and I will chat uh, early in the week. Marion will be on on Friday, but I just don't know how I'm going to get that Sunday episode for you. Thanks to Anika and Jonathan, to Jonathan for setting this up. To the people at Zencaster who retrieved the files after some really hairy moments they had a moment with anika's file but zencaster absolute killers they're just the best um and i will talk to you next tuesday tina and mikey make it all possible and so do you the patrons of this podcast on patreon.com thank you so much <laughs>